Welcome to the 120th session of the Weekly Huddle. I'm your host, Anoop, and joining me today is my friend and co-host, Praneet. We both are cardiologists working at Kim's Hospital. Uh, as most of you know that the Huddle is an unscripted uh, audience-level interaction where we try to address uh, common clinical scenarios that we encounter in our clinical practice. Last month, we took uh, a six weeks break where we tried to uh, reorganize ourselves uh, with an attempt that we can probably make the huddle discussion a little bit more meaningful uh, to our attendees. And in doing so, a slight change in formatting that we have done, uh, where we are trying to include uh, one or two uh, presentation or some kind of flowchart, and we are trying to involve more expert opinion uh, in our discussion. So keeping that theme in mind, uh, today our topic is uh, very basic, something that uh, uh, we, take, we take it for granted, and that is taking care of diabetes patients. And uh, in today's discussion, I'm trying to address everything about diabetes, but not sugar control. So we'll, we'll not talk about sugar control today, we'll talk about everything else that we should be doing in terms of a comprehensive uh, care for diabetes patient. And since I'm not talking about sugar, I on purpose uh, omitted the dietetics part of it, partly also because dietetics in uh, diabetes can itself be one particular uh, session. So I did not I did not think I would do justice by, by spending five, seven minutes talking about uh, diet in diabetes. So uh, in today's discussion, I have invited, and hopefully at some point I will have uh, my panel of experts sharing their thought about uh, diabetes care in their particular specialty. We will have a representation from endocrinology, obviously, but we will also be listening from nephrologist, uh, dental neurologist, ophthalmologist, internal medicine, and uh, cardiology. We'll try to see how a comprehensive care can be done. And uh, I'll try to uh, be as brief as possible and I would request my experts to be also as brief as possible, maybe four or five minutes for each of these, so that in the last we will have about 15, 20 minutes for an open discussion. So the case which I'm going to discuss today is a 55-year-old female. She has diabetes for about seven years. She does not have any other comorbidities. She had been following with uh, uh, an outside doctor, and now she comes to me for uh, establishing care. So she's essentially seeing me for the first time. She does not endorse any particular symptoms. She saw her doctor last about two years back. And after that, she has not seen uh, any, any of the doctors uh, ever since. But she had been quite religiously taking her medications and doing what she thinks is appropriate for diabetes care. On my review of systems, there were few symptoms that I could elicit. Uh, she did She did say that uh, her feet feel numb once a while, although she has never uh, experienced uh, any injuries or anything, and she has never seen any help for that. Uh, she does have some epigastric fullness and discomfort, particularly postprandial, which she uh, attributes it to gastritis or dyspepsia. She does get occasional headaches, which she has very poor characterization, and occasional back pain, which again she attributes to poor posture. She's a housewife, she's non-vegetarian, reasonably active, and a non-smoker. Her basic cardiovascular exam is within normal limits. She came to me with a panel of master health checkup. I won't tell you the individual details unless you ask me to. 
Her uh, labs, which included hemogram, renal profile, thyroid profile, they were all normal. Relevant for today's discussion, her HbA1c was 7.1. And amongst lipids, her LDL was 96. I have other reports with me also, which if you like, I can share it with you. Her ECG and echocardiogram, which were part of the master health checkup, were reported normal as well. Amongst the medication, I'm telling you the daily dosing, not the divided dosing. She takes two grams of metformin daily, five milligrams of lenagliptin daily, 25 milligrams of empagliflozin, glimepiride two milligrams, and one multivitamin. That is her entire medication list. Once a while, she takes uh, pantoprazole uh, if she has any dyspepsia symptoms. So I will start this discussion with the uh, endocrinologist who is on the panel today. So Vrinda, question for you. This patient, if uh, comes to you, you have got an A1C of 7.1. You have got some of these medications. Uh, as I said, we will try to restrict our discussion, uh, anything but, uh, diet, uh, but sugar control. So tell me, other than sugar control, how do you see this patient? What all you are going to discuss about this? And then whichever... Uh, organ system you want to address in this patient, I believe I will have an expert for that uh, for that organ system in today's discussion. So we can take opinion from that particular expertise. We can go one by one. So Brinda, please go ahead. And I will be sharing the slide that you have shared with me so that uh, people can uh, read through your mind as you are talking. Brinda, all yours. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, so, um seems like you know this patient has not seen a doctor for almost two years now so i think this is a very appropriate time to you know uh, address her diabetes and beyond just blood sugar control as for the topic today so i think uh, you know goes beyond saying that diabetes uh, is not just about sugar control uh, it's about you know monitoring and managing complications along with it so um the you know the gist of it is that you know of course it's very very important the concept of screening is essentially to you know pick up any um, you know complications in the beginning as at an early stage so that you could intervene early so for this patient um, you know starting with you know as i mentioned on the slide too um, she definitely um, you know would recommend i would recommend going for a dilated eye examination um, you know, she needs to be evaluated for uh, retinopathy. So a referral to an ophthalmologist would uh, be recommended for her. Um, and then um, this patient actually did complain of some, um, you know, uh, I, I, I think some uh, foot, uh, feet, um, neuropathy-like complaints. Uh, I will interrupt you for a second. So can you just give me a little bit of idea about, let us talk for the next five, seven minutes about eye exam. What do you exactly mean? How do you counsel the patient? And then I will have uh, Dr. Pritu Vyas, who is an ophthalmologist, uh, give his opinion about what uh, what he will do when, uh, when the patient reaches him for uh, diabetes uh, assessment. So Vrinda, just give us, give us one minute gist of how you refer these patients for, for ophthalmology evaluation. So I, I do tell the patients, I do counsel the patients that, you know, with diabetes, um, you know, you could, it could potentially affect the eyes. So, you know, patients with diabetes are at risk of de developing retinopathy, um, you know, glaucoma, cataracts, um, and, you know, refractive errors too. So um, based on this concern, I usually will tell them that uh, a lot of times by the time you develop symptoms, it might be too late to go to an ophthalmologist. So the concept of screening comes. 
So that's when I'll ask you to go see an ophthalmologist for your complete comprehensive eye exam, included a dil including a dilated eye examination. And uh, is it something that you uh, tell them at the onset of their disease or uh, the moment they are diagnosed with diabetes or are there certain uh, algorithms or checks and balances? Is it something for everybody? And how frequently? Is it annually? Is it uh, once in two years? Give us some idea. So um, patients with type 2 diabetes, absolutely at the time of diagnosis, uh, you know, I tell them it's not an emergency. If the blood sugars are very, very high, like 300s or 400s, I tell them to get the sugars and they're a little bit controlled before they go see an ophthalmologist. Uh, for type 1 diabetic patients, um, you know, um, basically we wait out about three to five years since the onset of diabetes and then uh, annually thereafter for both the sets of patients, type 1 versus type 2. Uh, they need um, an annual eye examination. Now, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, if the patients have no evidence of retinopathy, the ophthalmologist may take a call depending on the findings, whether they want to see the patients like, you know, say in one year or sometimes they may extend the review, say, to two years. But uh, the guideline recommendation is every year annually. Okay, Vinda, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll request you to pause for a second. I will ask uh, Dr. Prithu Vyas, uh, Dr. Pridhu, this patient, let's say, sees Brinda and then comes to you. Uh, it has been referred to you. Please uh, guide us through over the next few minutes. How do you see this patient and uh, what kind of value you can add when the patient comes to your clinic? Okay, good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Pridhu Vyas. So as uh, Dr. Vinda has rightly pointed out, uh, the first important thing uh, when we find or diagnose a patient with diabetes, uh, referral to ophthalmologist at the time of diagnosis is very essential as we never know at what stage the retinopathy is. And depending on the level of uh, care, that is if it is a primary care, uh, usually we uh, go for an ophthalmoscopic examination of the retina along with the retinal photography. If it's a tertiary care, we go for a fluorescein angiogram and an OCT to uh, clearly identify if there is any maculopathy also correlated with the diabetes. And the otherwise, uh, the protocol for uh, diabetic patients to get ophthalmic checkup would be, as uh, doctor has mentioned, it is uh, definitely at diagnosis and usually it has to be done annually. This is as per the uh, guidelines laid down earlier. Uh, but I would definitely see into the other comorbidities. Particularly, I will check into... Uh, hypercholesterolemia and hypertension also, if they are associated with diabetes in the patient, I would recommend probably an earlier uh, follow-up. And also I would correlate with the HbA1c levels particularly. And uh, I, I particularly prefer uh, doing earlier checkups. Suppose if the HbA1c is between six to seven, usually I follow the same annual protocol. Uh, however, it is uh, if it is around say seven to nine, I prefer to call the patient back in six months, even if the patient doesn't have any diabetic retinopathy because there is a higher chances and the patient is at a higher risk to develop retinopathy earlier. And if the patient has higher HbA1c levels, probably a little more earlier. And it'll also go for further evaluation of the retina. And as Dr. Vinda has again mentioned, it's not only the retina, but diabetic patients are prone to develop cataract at an early age and also glaucoma at a very early age. So these have to be monitored and a comprehensive eye examination 
has to be targeted and it's not only the retinopathy yes thank you so much thank you so much sir uh, if you could stay with us for a few more minutes in case if we have any sure. questions we will uh, we will address pranit you raise your hand any question that you have at this point i have a question to dr pradivyas regarding an uh, ophthalmology examination i believe you are a retina specialist just like there are specialist cardiologist and interventional general and non interventional cardiologist like who are the ophthalmologists that should be referred do every patient need to go to a retina specialist or a, a regular ophthalmologist can do the job uh, understanding that if a patient is in a tier 2 or tier 3 city uh, then how do they need to approach and like if a person is in tier 2 city what is the ophthalmologist expected to do or what are the ophthalmological services that can be expected uh yes dr pranit uh, it's like uh, see you have a specialization from a general physician to a cardiologist or a nephrologist uh, even we do have this specialization but i would say a general comprehensive ophthalmologist can easily pick up the findings of diabetic retinopathy and maculopathy uh, with a uh, decent exper- expertise and even in tier 2 cities it shouldn't be a problem whatsoever and most of the general ophthalmologists also have uh, uh fundus imaging retinal imaging i i can say at least more than 70% of them will be having this and uh, they can even refer or even get a suggestion from their retina colleagues by just sending the picture of the retina so we can get a basic assessment with this so uh, it's not necessary that every patient needs to go to a retina specialist uh, because uh, travel and uh, there are a lot of factors which can come into play so the best would be the nearest ophthalmologist uh, and in fact nowadays many uh, physicians we have actually trained many physicians and diabetologists with uh, the basic ophthalmoscopic examination and uh, retinal imaging also there are non metriatic cameras uh, fundus cameras uh, wherein it will uh, hardly take a minute photo and if you can just send it through to a retina colleague i think that makes uh, things easier uh not considering the cost factors of course it's not like every time for the cost but considering the patient's uh, uh condition so i think uh, diabetic screening has become very easy nowadays uh, so even tire one tire two cities i think it's it shouldn't be a problem uh, particularly to a retina specialist yes i would suggest in case the basic examination uh the basic fundus photography if the patient uh, sorry if the general ophthalmologist finds any difficulty only then usually the he refers to the retina specialist from a non ophthalmologist point of view uh, probably if the patient has an uncontrolled diabetes with a high hba1c levels also having neuropathy or other microvascular complications of diabetes Uh, then it's always prudent to send directly to a retina specialist because there are higher chances for a patient uh, as you all know that a patient with a diabetic nephropathy uh, most of the times will have diabetic retinopathy and might need some intervention yeah pranit i hope that answered your question yes or no okay uh <laughs> Brinda, if you could move on, I think we addressed the ophthalmology part. Uh, tell us what else you would be doing uh, with this patient uh, as a part of comprehensive care. Um, so, very important uh, would be to actually screen for diabetic nephropathy as well. So, for this patient, um, um, 
I believe that um, you know uh, this this patient hasn't uh, had um, um, any uh, urine albumin or creatinine ratio uh, checked uh, for the labs that you mentioned. But um, I would say that measurement of uh, urine albumin to creatinine ratio in a spot urine sample would be uh, the next um, screening strategy for this patient uh, to detect uh, diabetic uh, nephropathy. Um, this is a single most test, which is kind of, you know, um, the earliest clinical indication of, uh, you know, uh, diabetic nephropathy. Uh, this should, uh, this is something which I would uh, check at the time of diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And for type 1 diabetic patients, I could, uh, I would defer it until, say, again, um, you know, say five years um, since diagnosis for them. Um, and um, I'm again, sorry, did you say for type 2 or type 1? For type 1, it is uh, five years after the onset five of years, disease. Yeah. So, sorry, type, it the other way around, yeah. Sorry. Uh, for type 2 diabetics, uh, it's actually at the time of diagnosis that they should uh, receive the screening uh, for diabetic nephropathy with a spot urine albumin creatinine ratio. Also, um, uh, an estimated GFR um, calculation. So, these are the two things which I would request for this patient if it's not been done on the labs. And then, um, you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, if uh, say it's minimally elevated, the urine protein um, is minimally elevated. Uh, I would like to repeat it on a separate day, um, you know, also making sure that, um, you know, the blood sugars are not very high. Sometimes, you know, with acute hypoglycemia, um, you know, uh, a trace protein could be detected. Um, so all of these things keeping in mind, but I would definitely send her for a diabetic nephropathy screening. So, Vrinda, follow-up question to you. I think that Rajiv sir hinted you on that. Why three, five years in type 1 and why at the time of diagnosis for type 2? Um, it's uh, understanding the basically the natural history of kind of progression of diabetes for type 2 diabetes. Um, you know, um, almost about 50% of patients may actually be harboring these complications uh, in the asymptomatic state for um, type 2 diabetic patients. Um, because we usually understand that, you know, the, uh, the pathogenetic changes might have started like quite a few years ago before, say, a person was diagnosed with the type 2 diabetes. So they are, they are at a much higher chance or risk of uh, harboring these complications from uncontrolled uh, hyperglycemia um, with type 2 diabetes, type, type 2 diabetes patients. Thank say, you, Vinda, Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rajiv, sir, let's say this patient was to come to you. Uh, we are talking about proteinuria. I am guessing asymptomatic because now it has been checked at the time of screening uh, and maybe some reduced GFR or whatnot. How do you see these patients? What kind of value uh, do you add and what is your frequency of follow-up for, this, for these patients? Rajiv, sir. Yeah, so um, actually, uh, Dr. Brinda has made my job a little bit easier. Um, so there has been kind of like a paradigm shift in the way we approach diabetic nephropathy. Uh, for example, we now call it uh, diabetic kidney disease, and there's a reason for that. Um, nephropathy is something that we've kind of extrapolated from type 1 diabetes. And there is this paradigm that, you know, proteinuria always precedes decline in GFR, uh, which is not the case uh, that we are now seeing in type 2 diabetes. Um, what we are now seeing in type 2 diabetes is that you can have the classic uh, proteinuric or albuminuric uh, kidney disease, uh, 
but you also have this subset of non albuminuric kidney disease so you are now defining diabetic kidney disease even without albuminuria and you actually have we actually have done biopsies in these patients and you find that you know they do have some of the classical lesions of diabetic nephropathy but they also have tubular interstitial uh, uh, changes and sometimes the tubular interstitial disease is more predictive of how your gfr will decline having said that if you have a patient with um, albuminuria which is positive on repeated checking uh, or you have somebody with reduced gfr which is not attributable to any other cause um, then you really are trying to protect their uh, decline in gfr over the period of you know next few years to decades and try to prevent them from going into eskd uh, but before we do that um, if there is one thing that you know as a nephrologist i would like to if i am discussing with other specialties um the most uh, weird thing for us is that uh, when we hear the term normal creatinine because all these equations of gfr that we have are basically calculations from uh, you know creatinine values and the egfr equations that we have at least the most famous ones that we have the mdrd one basically they are derived largely from a subset of non diabetic subjects and uh, it was a study on you know the role of protein in uh, uh, diet and kidney disease um, and then that was not a very positive study and then they got these equations out of the study which kind of you know in at least a largely non diabetic set of people correlates well with iathalamate clearance um whether or not these equations really tell us what is going on in terms of gfr the evidence is not very strong for that so and the other thing is the nature of creatinine itself when a person travels within a range of normal creatinine from let's say a creatinine of 0.6 to a creatinine of 1.1 essentially you've lost 45% of your gfr so even within um, the so called normal range of creatinine there is a huge amount of kidney damage that can happen and does does happen because uh, these are the patients you see when they have come to you with creatinine of you know 1.2 1.3 and all so uh, the question always is you know how do you measure gfr uh, the easiest thing of course is what is available which is our ckd epi or mdrd equations uh, but there is a case to be made for you know using another marker like cystatin c and we now have equations that combine both which probably give you a better estimate of gfr than just mdrd or ckd and keep in mind that ckd epi and mdrd gfr they are not very good at measuring gfr above 60 the errors are much more when the gfr is above 60 so that's one thing the other thing is that uh, even in terms of uh, microalbuminuria uh, in the last few years the terminology has changed we no longer say microalbuminuria we say moderately increased albuminuria we don't say macroalbuminuria now we say severely increased albuminuria um, um we now have um, i mean the the basic tenets of treatment are the same you know intensive glucose control intensive hypertension control take care of cardiovascular risk factors uh, treat obesity um one more thing is to prevent episodes of aki because these patients are a unique subset where an episode of aki you know it could be gastroenteritis it could be the use of nsaids an episode of pyelonephritis a diabetic patient with an episode of aki can straight away land into ckd4 and we've seen this happen so um so this is how i would uh, broadly approach these patients with reduced gfr and uh, proteinuria um 
of course we now have this wonderful gamut of drugs of you know what you can use to treat albuminuria and all that so obviously if you have albuminuria um you would be using uh, uh, especially if the bp is high you would be using ace inhibitors or arps um this patient is already on empagliflozin which is wonderful um if despite you know um using uh, maximum doses of ace inhibitors or arps along with sglt2 if the proteinuria is still not controlled then we now have you know data from figaro and uh, uh, fidelio uh, that fendrenone is really good because all said and done uh, diabetes is an inflammatory disease ckd is an inflammatory disease and uh, these drugs do target those pathways uh, without uh, much risk of hyperkalemia um i if this patient is not hypertensive i would be on the watch out for hypertension in this patient because um the way because diabetes is often a cause of hypertension uh, although hypertension and diabetes do coexist but quite often we see that you know hypertension comes after diabetes in a lot of type 2 diabetics and of course the reason is you know the classical hyperglycemia leading to increased sodium reabsorption leading to decreased sodium delivery to the macula densa and then that triggers the afferent arteriole into dilating and then again that activates the renangiotensin system hyperfiltration all these things so i would be kind of uh, on the watch out for hypertension if somebody has reduced gfr and established albuminuria i'd probably be screening them around once in 3 uh, months um if they are let's say in stage 2 probably i'd go up to around once in 6 months but once in 3 months for somebody who is up to stage 3 stage 4 because that is the time when you can actually do a lot of good there is not much you can do once they are in uh, stage 4 or stage 5 um and coming to the newer drugs you know um i don't know if this patient has diabetic gastroparesis if this patient has diabetic gastroparesis i would not be and suppose this patient was obese i would be wary of using uh, you know the glp1 agonist um but yeah uh, management of obesity would be a, a big part of how i would treat you know type 2 diabetes um yeah i hope that answered your question thank you rajiv sir that was uh, quite comprehensive and i think up to the point i was actually thinking of asking you the role of ace inhibitors but that you have already answered uh, we'll go back to brinda uh, brinda if you could, we have covered uh, ophthalmology and nephrology part uh, please walk us through uh, other aspects of uh, diabetes care um so i also would recommend uh, this patient get a dental examination so again a uh, dental examination is something that i routinely recommend to all newly diagnosed type 2 diabetic patients uh, uh, as well as type 1 uh, patients uh, um, and uh, this can be done annually if they don't have any other concerns um and this is essentially because uh, patients with diabetes have been known to have you know um, a higher likelihood of oral health issues like you know more cavities and the infection of the gum the gum disease and the whole periodontal area the bones um the, the supporting structure of the teeth so uh, keeping that in mind um, you know i usually would recommend them to see a dentist at this point of time too and uh, brinda is it a one time thing or do you think uh, they need to be seen because typically what we say is we need to see a dentist once a year for dental hygiene now right. we know that 
it typically does not happen. I don't know of anybody, at least in my circle, and I myself don't go and visit a dentist once a year. But what is your what is the recommendation for uh, diabetic patients? So the recommendation outlined in the guidelines is that they should be seeing a dentist at least once a year. Um, now the frequency could be defined uh, based on the initial assessment, you know, to every six months as well. But um, the, the routine recommendation that I have is that at least once a year, go see your dentist. We have uh, uh, Dr. Prasad here. Dr. Prasad uh, is uh, a senior dentist at Kim's Hospital in Secunderabad. Dr. Prasad, this is a diabetic, this is a 55-year-old female who is diabetic for about seven years that we are discussing. Uh, could you please walk us through what kind of role you play in taking care of uh, such patients who come into you asymptomatic, they just came because their endocrinologist asked them to go and see a, a dental specialist. Dr. Prasad, please unmute yourself uh, and you can uh, share your thoughts. Yeah, Mr. Anu. Yes, Hello. sir. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, yeah, sir, first, please. Of, first of all, thanks a lot for giving me the opportunity for sharing such a very good views regarding the diabetes and dental care. Today, we'll discuss just a guide to the healthy mouth regarding the diabetes patients. Normally, what will happen, no, whether we have a, irrespective of diabetic type 1 or type 2, we have the when the blood sugar levels are increased, we face a lot of problems, either tooth decays, early gum diseases, periodontal diseases. Most of the people don't have any awareness regarding the uh, uh, regarding the health effects of dental when compared when it is in the diabetic patient. Normally, it's a vice versa. When the sugar level has been raised, what will happen? No, the normal we have a lot of microbia in our oral cavity. What will happen? It has an interaction with the sugars and starches. It forms a biofilm called as a plaque. When the plaque retains in that area, what will happen? It immediately releases some or other acids which destroy the enamel and causing a decay. That is more prone for the diabetic patients. That is the first thing. Second thing, if that film got retained, what will happen? It turns into the calculus where it becomes a uh, major area for the bacteria to be in and it uh, damages a lot to the periodontium. Periodontium means it is surrounding the teeth. Next, what will happen? No, once the tartar got uh, this thing, it got irritated to the gingiva and the gingivitis will start. Once the gingivitis will start, if you neglect that one, it leads to the periodontal diseases and loosening of teeth. Most of the diabetic patients most of the patients, once they enter into my clinic, I immediately after seeing the total generalized mobility of the teeth, I suspect that they have some diabetic problem and I'll ask them to just uh, went to a checkup for the diabetes and all that. The major thing is the tooth decay, gum diseases, advanced diseases, thrush and dry mouth. These are all the symptoms. And what we have to do regarding that, Proper dental care is the major thing. Make a commitment to manage your diabetes. That is the primary thing. Secondary thing, brush your teeth at least twice a day. Brush in the morning, at night, and ideally after meals and snacks. Use a soft bristle toothbrush and toothbrush that contains fluoride. Avoid vigorous or harsh scrubbing. Next one is floss your teeth at least once a day. 
to it reduces lot of uh, food where all the food which is going to impacted in that area it gives a lot of relief for that one and for next one is schedule regular dental visits visit your dentist at least twice a year for a normal person we used to refer once in a year but for the diabetic people twice a year because the immunity uh, against the infection will reduce for diabetic so the action of bacteria will be more in the diabetic patients when compared with the normal patients make sure your dentist should know you that you have a diabetes all the diabetic patients should inform to the dental surgeon whether they are diabetic look for early signs of gum diseases report any signs of gum diseases whether it is a redness or bleeding from gums when you are brushing or is there any swelling or color change normal the gingiva is a pale pink it becomes into the red and boggy gingiva apart from that see the mobility of the teeth if the mobile if the teeth is more mobile you have to or visit the dental surgeon and foremost is halitosis halitosis also will be increased for a diabetic patient when compared to the normal patients and if the patients have a dryness of mouth then obviously the thrush will act in that area and dryness again leads to the halitosis dk and periodontitis and the final and foremost thing is don't smoke smoke increases the risk of serious diabetic complications including gum disease and ultimately loss of your teeth managing diabetes is a lifelong commitment and that includes proper dental care your efforts will be rewarded with a lifetime of healthy teeth and gums hello anu yes sir yeah is it audible yes sir you were yeah. audible and you were crisp and clear yeah thank you thank you thank you dr prasad for that uh, uh, assessment uh, about dental care in diabetes uh, brinda take us forward we discussed about the dental care what next for diabetic patients um so i know uh, very important is to um, you know assess for the risk factors for coronary artery disease cardiovascular disease so i um, uh will definitely talk about you know um you know a measuring blood pressure cholesterol levels um you know ask about uh, smoking history you know about their family history um calculate their height weight and bmi so it's very important um you know that we address all of these risk factors with the patient and you know i do talk to them that eventually you know it's the bigger complications with uncontrolled diabetes and risk factors that we're talking about so um all these assessments are um you know essential at the very first visit um you know with the physician at the time of diagnosis uh, what i mean to say and um um you know uh, based on the risk factor profile we'll address each one of them individually and then talk about risk factor modification lifestyle medications um routinely um you know i i do have a good group of cardiologists here we do not usually recommend uh, sending everybody with asymptomatic um state for um you know stress testing uh for cardiovascular disease but um, assessment of um, risk factors is what i actually uh, pay attention to so and, uh, yeah go ahead vinda sorry um and i meant to say that even for patients with type 1 diabetes measurement of blood pressure cholesterols um you know paying attention to weight 
all of these things, smoking history is very, very important to elicit, even at the uh, first visit, um, you know, with the physician. So uh, we'll, we'll proceed for the cardiovascular assessment. Uh, my co-host Praneet probably can give his input. Praneet, if this patient was to come to you, referred from uh, endocrinologist about uh, cardiovascular risk assessment. She's asymptomatic, 55 female. Walk us through how do you uh, take care of this patient? Yeah, so uh, uh, for a diabetes, it is considered to be a risk marker for atherosclerotic cardiovascular diseases, uh, meaning the... Um, we discussed about microvascular complication. We are talking about macrovascular complication, which is coronary artery disease, peripheral artery disease, and cerebrovascular accident. And uh, we have these uh, risk factors, and diabetes is considered to be one of the important risk factors after hypertension and age. Now, because she is 50 plus female, presumably postmenopausal with a history of diabetes and hypertension, I would uh, consider her to be having risk factors. Uh, I would try to see whether she already has any established uh, uh, coronary artery disease and peripheral artery disease, if needed, equally coronary, uh, cerebrovascular um, risk for CVA, that is uh, any carotid artery disease. So uh, I would try to ask her symptoms uh, about her physical activity and does she have any exertional uh, symptoms of uh, dyspnea, any pain, any limb uh, claudication, and equally try to inquire into symptoms of uh, any symptoms suggestive of any transient ischemic attacks, etc. Uh, if there is an established uh, signs and symptoms suggestive uh, of any coronary artery disease, I would try to investigate further to uh, establish further. Uh, or else uh, I would kind of uh, uh, stop at this point of time. You said she is asymptomatic. Uh, I believe she is only at risk and she does not have an established uh, coronary artery disease. Now, moving forward for the investigations point of view, a basic ECG and ECO is something that I would look into it. And if they are fine, I would be okay. And diabetes can also uh, lead to not only coronary artery disease, sometimes uh, myocardial dysfunction. So I would uh, want to look at ECO and an ECG to see whether she has any evidence of any myocardial damage or any MI uh, silently, because we know diabetic patients can equally have a silent MI. For uh, peripheral artery disease, uh, I would uh, try to look for uh, peripheral pulses and try to see any radio radial or radio femoral delay uh, as a bedside investigation. And if uh, uh, available, I would ask for an ankle brachial index to look at peripheral artery disease. Uh, I would uh, look into any presence of carotid brewing to try to see. And I have a low threshold to ask for carotid Doppler to look for uh, carotid artery stenosis. So this is to establish about the three aspects of coronary peripheral artery disease and carotid artery disease. And uh, for uh, treatment point of view, in addition to strict control of diabetes, which the endo colleague is managing, in addition to that, I will have a very low threshold to put the patient on statins. Now, whether the patient should deserve the statin or not will be the question. The presence of diabetes itself in a postmenopausal uh, woman, I would uh, uh, tend to put this patient on statin. Her LDL cholesterol is 122. I would try to target it less than 70 as a primary prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular diseases. Regarding antiplatelet, probably I will wait on it because she is young. Unless there is any other uh, indication for me to give, I would uh, be waiting to give an antiplatelet, but statin definitely yes. In addition to other uh, drugs for control of hypertension and diabetes. So for, this is how I would uh, probably approach this case. Anna. 
Pranit, quick question for you. Is there any diabetes patient on whom you will not give uh, statin? Almost no. For almost every patient, I would be uh, putting a statin. The intensity may vary, but uh, almost every diabetic patient will receive a statin unless there is any strong reason for me not to give. And when you start statin, do you have a differentiation in terms of low dose versus high dose? So preferably, I would uh, try to gauge this based on the lipid profile. If the patient uh, has a lipid profile, if I advise and they get it done, I would uh, try to titrate the dose of uh, statin to target the LDL. But if I do not have and I have to make an empirical, I would at least start with a moderate intensity statin to begin with and then titrate accordingly. What if patients like these have a CT calcium score of zero? Still, uh, even if their calcium score is zero, I would still consider them to be having uh, 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 them to be having a risk of ACBT. Uh, Postmenopausal uh, women, for me, uh, is considered to be having a risk. So I would be tempted, or I have a low threshold to give them on starting, even if their calcium score is low. Thank you, Praneet. Uh, Vrinda, we come back to you. We discussed the cardiovascular aspect of it. Anything that we are missing uh, that we need to discuss? Uh, so uh, patients with diabetes should also undergo a comprehensive foot examination for assessment of um, you know, peripheral neuropathy. Um, so essentially, um, a newly diagnosed um, patient uh, with type 2 diabetes, I would um, ask them to you know, take off their shoes, look at their feet, starts with, um, you know, just uh, a good visual inspection, look for any deformities, um, you know, check the gait, um, skin color, um, toenails for like fungal infection and all, um, you know, uh, check for any ulcers, calluses. And then, um, you know, I would uh, proceed with, uh, you know, checking for any loss of protective sensations, like, um, you know, the vibration sense, uh, the pressure sense. So for that, you know, we could utilize um, the most commonly what I utilize is a 10 gram monofilament. Um, and there are uh, the pressure points is where you actually touch it and ask for the patient whether they can feel it or not. And then, um, you know, tuning fork um, examination um, for vibration sense also can be utilized, put it on the bony prominence on the grade two and then ask for the patient if um, they can actually sense the vibration and ask them when, when it stops. Um, and um, these patients um, then assess for like pedal pulses, um, check for reflexes. Um, if there is a concern for decreased pedal pulses, I may consider getting ABIs uh, for these patients. Um, so um, usually these should be done like a, a foot examination, a visual inspection, like um, a brief uh, quick examination would be warranted. Like every time a patient visits you, a lot of times patients um, you know, don't even know with loss of um, sensation that they may be, you know, having a small blister here and there or an ulceration. But a comprehensive examination could be taken out, taken um, care of essentially annually for most of the diabetic patients. And Brinda, uh, what, what happens? So you check for monofilament test, let's say you find some aberrancy. I'm guessing uh, they are not able to feel uh, it symmetrically or whatnot. If you find some aberrancy with monofilament, what is your next step? Do you send them to neurologist? What is what do you do? 
so we do it all starts with like you know the abc is like you know talk about glycemic control um good foot care protective you know footwear and then medications as needed um you know so we do have medications approved for diabetic neuropathy that can be utilized um you know uh, but um um you know a lot of times based on the severity of the patient complaints uh, i may actually refer them to a neurologist so we do have neurologist in that in our attendance dr praveen is uh, a neurologist at kims hospital and uh, we both work together for a lot of our patients dr praveen we are talking about a 55 year old female who has diabetes for about 7 years who saw brinda and uh, brinda thinks that there is some sensation difference on her monofilament examination if this patient was to come to you uh, how are you going to proceed with these kind of patients who don't have any other overt symptoms uh, dr praveen if you could please unmute yourself and share your thoughts yeah uh, good evening everybody sorry for joining late i was in one more program therefore uh, uh, it's uh, sorry uh, first of all as we all know as the time passes especially in type 2 diabetics most of them will be having a neuropathy therefore uh, whenever a patient comes with a symptom because normally when they will have the symptom they reach, reach a neurologist now i what i try to see is that whether it's simple diabetic sensory neuropathy or not if it is a simple diabetic sensory neuropathy in the in the that uh, only the light touch has gone but the joint position is preserved vibration is normal ankle jerk is okay i don't do much i suggest only to have a good glycemic control i take it a point to teach about the foot care that's it but when there is a suggestion that there is a involvement of large fiber vibration going down and there is ankle jerks coming down or asymmetry there is there i make it a point to definitely investigate common things what as we all know we definitely check for a vitamin b12 a thyroid profile and definitely a good amount of uh, 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 look for a uh, glycemic control here one caveat i would like to add is that uh, we have subset of patients who who do not diabetic pre diabetic who be having a bad sugar control uh, who normal sugars but a sensory neuropathy in those patient also nowadays i make it a point to look for uh, uh, any evidence of pre diabetes and i educate them about the symptoms and how to look forward and prevent the diabetes from progressing and sir if you could uh, uh, give a brief uh, overview on the pharmacotherapy for this kind of uh, neuropathy or any other lifestyle measures that you can suggest them uh, to prevent injuries or what not true 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 first and uh, the foremost is that uh, there are no preventive medications for diabetic neuropathy much water has passed through the bridge some talk about the aldose reductase inhibitors some talk about the some supplements but till now there is no medicine to prevent neuropathy apart from a good glycemic control and definitely we have lots of medicine which take care of the symptoms 
especially the positive symptoms, paresthesias. And in as we all know, what is it? They are the calcium ligand binders, such as gabapentin, pregabalin. This is what we commonly use. And uh, of late, what we see is that pregabalin, our we Indians don't tolerate. Even with the medium, medium, small dosage, most of them complain about giddiness. In those patients, uh, I find gabapentin to be very uh, good. Duloxetine is one more tablet, which, which is uh, used uh, uh, sparingly, but in patients who has uh, some psychiatric issues, that works well. Most of it, but when there's just a sensory neuropathy, I try to educate the patient, the attendants, and uh, look for any deficiencies. And definitely with the advent of so many creams, now we have lidocaine cream, we have a combination of gabapentin and lidocaine. I may make it a point to, for, to suggest these to each of my patients. Most of them like it, some of them don't. After that, you would be feeling, you would be able to tolerate and you'll, you won't need any other medication. The only suggestion that the medications are not needed, most of the patients uh, use uh, uh, topical ointments that I find it's uh, very helpful in my managing the day-to-day -day practice. Thank you, Dr. Praveen. We'll move on. Yeah, I'd like uh, to add a small point, if I may. Yes, um, sir. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, one of my personal experiences is that uh, people uh, do present with worsening of neuropathy, um, um, especially when they've had a rapid fall in their HbA1c. Um, and we do notice this with some of the newer drugs, um, especially, you know, the um, GLP-1 agonists. Uh, but also, you know, when somebody comes to you with uh, sugars of 400, 500, and uh, you put them on a very high dose of insulin, and they come back two weeks later, and, uh, you know, they have burning in their feet. And uh, I think the term is insulin neuritis or something like that. But quite often, at least... Um, at my end, what I noticed is that it's not just established diabetic neuropathy, but also a recent rapid improvement in glycemic control that causes this. I would like to know your thoughts on it, sir, Dr. Praveen. Yes, yes, uh, I totally agree. Uh, in, initially, it was called as insulin neuritis also. When we in introduce insulin or there is a rapid control that definitely causes uh, okay, painful neuropathy. Many times, it causes a lumbosacral flexibility that becomes unbearable. Patient, apart from the pain, cannot walk also. That, uh, therefore, I always uh, look into it when there is a patient who has come with sudden worsening. What has happened? Has he uh, pushed for a good sugar control? And uh, that's it. But the problem is that uh, the, these patients also, we don't have any other management apart from the medications which we use day in and day out. Yes, in some lay cases, they have suggested using immunomodulation with IVIG, but uh, I have only used for about patient or two who had very bad lumbar sexual plexopathy after a rapid correction of glucose. Mostly, I manage it symptomatically. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Dr. Praveen. We will move on. And before I open uh, the session for discussion, uh, Brinda, any, any last points that we are missing before I ask uh, uh, rest of my attendees for their opinion? And 
And my apologies to the attendees. We are probably going to exceed uh, our dedicated time, maybe 10 more minutes. So if you could uh, hang around for that time period so we can have a little bit of discussion, a follow-up discussion on that. So Vrinda, final comments from your side before I open the discussion. Um, so uh, one quick uh, reminder that patients with type 1 diabetes because of the autoimmune nature of the condition um, should be screened for thyroid disease, um, you know, at the time of diagnosis and then annually towards I that's what I do. Um, um, also with the tissue transglutaminase um, IgA, uh, the antibody, um, we should definitely, she's 55 years of age um, for this case, and we should talk about the routine um, cancer screenings because patients with diabetes are usually at a higher risk of uh, developing morbidity and mortality from cancer. So we should address that also. And then vaccinations life lastly. Um, so, you know, talking about uh, pneumo, uh, pneumovax, talking about, um, you know, influenza uh, vaccination, I think that would be my recommendation for this patient at her first visit with me. Thank you, Vrinda. With this, uh, I open the discussion uh, to my attendees and I will start with Dr. Satyanarayana. Uh, Dr. Satyanarayana, I know you have a very keen interest in lifestyle uh, diseases, particularly diabetes. If you could just share your thoughts about uh, uh, how we take care of these patients. And uh, please be reminded, we are not talking about sugar control this time. This we will address in a different uh, session altogether. Uh, Dr. Satyanarayana. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anup and Dr. Samradu, and asking for my opinion. I'm, I'm sure... Diabetes means controlling the sugar is a suboptimal way of treating the diabetes. The pathophysiology, if you look at the type 1 diabetes or a type 2 diabetes or the other rare varieties like Lada and the Modi, the situation here, what we have to understand is the background mechanism. Once if you understand this one, type 1 diabetes is a lack of insulin produced by the beta cells of the pancreas. Whereas type 2 diabetes is the result of hyperinsulinemia. And also the so-called uh, blood sugar paradigm, by the time we recognize to label somebody as a diabetic, the insulin resistance has developed. And also particularly microvascular complications, what we discussed all the time, like uh, retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, and angiopathy, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at all the common denominator for this one is the vascular endothelium. And that is caused by the insulin excess, insulin resistance. So the diabetes, even though it looks like many organs are involved, basically it is a reproduction of the vascular disease. If you identify anybody, don't bother about blood sugars at all. A simple science like skin tax, acanthosis nigricans, which tell you the insulin resistance. And if you start monitoring plasma insulin and calculate the HOMO IR, these are the better markers than estimating HP1C or even blood sugar. When once somebody is having higher amount of HOMO IR, and particularly if they got a dyslipidemia, don't wait for LDL to increase. If the triglycerides and HDL ratio, if it is more than two, that means he is at risk of uh, diabetes. He has somebody told, 
if a somebody has got a cardiovascular disease and if he doesn't have a diabetes if somebody says it is undetected diabetes so cardiovascular disease cannot exist without diabetes it is so synonymous so in view of all these things what i normally do for all these kind of patients when they come to me i blame all the time insulin resistance if it is a type 2 diabetes if it is a type 1 i go for c peptide and also the measurement of the insulin levels and home ir so we are not discussing about type 1 type 2 i take all the measures to reduce the insulin resistance and improve the insulin sensitivity once the insulin sensitivity is improved either pharmacotherapy or non pharmacological therapy you can improve all the symptoms and also you can prevent the progress of the retinopathy angiopathy nephropathy and all other things which are commonly associated with advanced glycemic end products this is the result of the advanced glycemic end products particularly this is a result of the mitochondrial dysfunction if you understand mitochondria and correct the mitochondrial dysfunction probably we can correct all these things any drug that increases the insulin production including insulin worsens the type 2 diabetes particularly sulfonylureas whereas the uh, metformin and other drugs like uh, sglp inhibitors or glp inhibitors which does not increase the insulin production they increase the insulin sensitivity that's why they are cardioprotective also half led so much of literature we are seeing sglp inhibitors and in the uh, added benefit to the cardiovascular system so in this way what i in nutshell i want to say is type 2 diabetes is not lack of insulin it is excess production of the insulin and insulin resistance if you can take care of insulin resistance and if you improve the insulin sensitivity the all the pathophysiology what we discussed the end organ failures we can prevent it even if they develop some sort of advanced stage in a retinopathy or cardiovascular disease or nephropathy we can still prevent at the stage and we can prevent the progress so this is what my i feel and i do like this and my personally i improved my insulin dependent diabetes 80 units i used to take morning 80 units in the evening and also under three oral anti diabetics plus anti hypertensive drugs and i got a remission from the diabetes and i'm not taking any kind of insulin or other drugs at present so particularly if you are interested Roy Taylor from UK, like a twin cycle theory, or if you are interested, a nephrologist called Yasin Fung from Ontario, Canada, they have written a diabetic code. If you go through these things, probably you will understand more how to manage the diabetes. Thank you very much for giving me the time. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, I will uh, invite uh, Shankar sir to give his opinion. Shankar sir, you have heard. all the discussion which has been going on so far please let us know your thoughts and something that we have missed in our entire discussion uh, <clears throat> apart from uh, the earlier good evening to all uh, earlier we used to concentrate on only glycemic control uh, so glucocentric our approach but now the our approach is patient centric just now Dr. P. V. Sathnayan sir already already told the approach is now patient centric, so personalized medicine is there now. Uh, 
so uh, the glycemic control we now the parameters are there like uh, fasting blood sugar and the post lunch uh, or post prandial blood sugars uh, fasting is uh, 80 to 110 or 130 up to 130 also ada uh, allows then post prandial it should be less than 180 then hba1c it should be less than 7 then now one more parameter has come to oh that is the tir the time in range uh, so there uh, at least uh, 70% of the day uh, our blood sugar should be in uh, Our time in range that is seventy to seventy milligrams to one eighty milligrams to avoid uh, uh, diabetic diabetes related complications. That is regarding the only glycemic control, uh, the blood sugars and HbA1c and the uh, TIR that will be done by CGM. That is a continuous glucose monitoring system. So uh, regarding the microvascular complications so we should uh, uh, concentrate only on the glucose control especially a tight blood sugar control should be there to avoid uh, these uh, microvascular complications like retinopathy nephropathy and the neuropathy but macrovascular complements so the uh, complications like uh, coronary artery disease and the cerebrovascular disease peripheral artery disease they are mostly related uh, to multifactor multifactor multifactorial risk so we should control the blood pressure we should control the um, lipid levels we should control uh, we should stop smoking and we should uh, uh, control the obesity so this is regarding the microvascular and the macrovascular complications uh, well narrated by different uh, specialists uh, i'm very happy uh, nothing is uh, to add but the only thing is uh, Uh, i want to know from dr rajiv uh, how to differentiate whether it is a diabetic kidney disease or non diabetic kidney disease that's a very good question sir so uh, one of the um, first things we do is we also screen for retinopathy um, in type 2 diabetes the concordance between established you know biopsy proven diabetic nephropathy and retinopathy is around 60% so i mean it's not uh, as great as it is in type 1 diabetes but definitely it is something so first up if you see somebody with uh, type 2 diabetes and they have significant albuminuria and they don't have retinopathy that somewhere starts some alarm bell ringing that you know this could not this probably is uh, you have to look for non diabetic renal disease but there is also the way diabetes diabetic nephropathy behaves diabetic nephropathy is a slowly progressive disease with a decline in gfr of around you know somewhere between 2 to 3 ml per year so if you see somebody with either a rapid decline in gfr or a sudden rapid increase in uh, albuminuria or their urine starts showing new things you know like rbc cas or uh, you know uh, they have uh, um, um, either uh, um, a sudden uh, accelerated hypertension or you know all these features uh, or a systemic disease which is probably of autoimmune uh, nature uh, if you have all these clues then you really start thinking about non diabetic renal disease but the basic idea is that diabetic nephropathy diabetic kidney disease is a very slowly progressive disease and anything that kind of disturbs that slope which is a predictable slope 
then you start thinking about uh, non diabetic uh, renal disease thank you thank you thank you so much shankar sir uh, i will move on and uh, invite uh, dr vijay reddy sir sir i i do read some of the comments that you have put it in the chat box if you could just share your thoughts uh, in addition to what we have discussed already about diabetes care vijay reddy sir good evening to all i everybody already uh, they have discussed everything everything my two I, i i want to assess only two things uh regarding that there, there is no doubt that statin should be given irrespective of the lipid status between 42 to 40 to 75 years uh in primary prevention that is number one number two is very low levels of lipoprotein a will leads to diabetes that is also one of the established fact the mechanism is but still not known but it is a very much established fact these are the two things i want to highlight thank you so much uh, vijay sir i'll invite uh, somaraju sir for his comments about today's discussion and anything that we missed somaraju sir thank you anup <clears throat> Pranit and uh, I think almost everything is covered, except just point out uh, uh, one or two issues. Namely, uh, in the evaluation of a patient uh, with diabetes, uh, you are talking about uh, you, you must not miss out on physical activity and exercise, and also the food we eat is medicine, particularly in diabetes. So, the not only the patient but the whole family should be advised. because they have a tendency for diabetes so food is food or diet physical activity and exercise physical activity and exercise are different things as you know i won't highlight it now and also any patient on diabetes particularly when they are on metformin long term they are vegetarians particularly b12 deficiency is particularly common it is not only in neuropathy it contributes but also uh, tendency for thrombosis in a cardiovascular high risk patient we see very early young, uh, very young people uh, coming with b12 deficiency and thrombosis and acute myocardial infarction and no other risk factors so please keep that in mind b12 should be estimated and homocysteine plus b12 combination helps us to make the decisions and also don't forget about diet exercise physical activity and also whatever we advise the patient uh, somebody said dr uh, sachin uh, said patient centered as somebody said today patient centered means if you don't uh, find out the social determinants of health in the patient you are dealing with you can't treat diabetes properly thank you thank you so much sir uh, very relevant uh, the social determinants that often uh, we as a end care provider sometimes uh, we find it disabled to address that uh, but i think it requires an active attempt for each one of us at least at least to uh, look into if we can't if we can't change things that much but at least uh, we should look into uh, education is a very important and uh, simpler thing for uh, uh, doctors because lack of education is one of the determinant uh, of poor health so at least this is one thing that we can do uh if anybody has got any questions or comments about today's discussion we can take it for the next maybe one minute or so i know we are uh, exceeding our time today uh, but we had a very 
comprehensive discussion, so I thought it's worth extending the time. Uh, if uh, there are no questions, uh, then I'll ask Praneet for today's closing remarks. Yeah, so um, a comprehensive discussion, um, diabetes having both macro and microvascular complications. So every diabetic patient should be evaluated for both of them. Uh, I think the attention goes with uh, microvascular complications and microvascular complications are often missed and uh, the neuro, nephro and retinopathy has been uh, well covered by the respective uh, specialists. And uh, the uh, forgotten part was the dental examination, which also has been well highlighted uh, by our dental surgeon. So I think uh, with the inputs which have been given uh, and the discussion that we had, I believe it uh, is the responsibility of every physician or a doctor who encounters a diabetic patient that the these uh, respected uh, specialists need to be encountered at least once or as per as recommended and thereby we can probably uh, provide a more comprehensive care to this patient and not focusing only on sugars where most of the attention is uh, going to that particular aspect. Uh, I believe this should definitely change the practice patterns and which will uh, equally help the patients. Thank you, Anu. Thank you, Praneet. And my sincere thanks to uh, all the guests who uh, made it to the discussion today. I thank uh, doctors, namely Vrinda, Rajiv sir, uh, Prasad sir, Praveen sir, and Prithvya sir for their thought, uh, thought process, and everybody else who uh, contributed to today's discussion. Uh, as you all know that we have changed our timing. Earlier we were doing it 7 p.m., but now we are doing it at 8 p.m. to accommodate uh, the requirements. And uh, we are trying to include more uh, subspecialist topics, or I would say a little bit of expertise topics uh, these days, and we are trying to get at least one or two expert in today's uh, in all of the discussion. So we'll be back next Wednesday. I have already shared the schedule of the topics uh, that we are going to cover this month and next month, uh, which is there on the WhatsApp huddle group. If you have not joined yet, uh, I request you to do so. The links are there in the invite. I'll see you next Wednesday at eight o'clock with a new topic. Till then, good night. And thank you all. Uh, have a good week ahead. Good night, all.